Hello, and welcome into Full Screen Podcast. I'm your host, Kira Astor, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, grabbing her lasso for some Amazonian palace intrigue coming in 2025. It's Raven Ebert! How are we, Raven? I'm good. I'm relieved that DC was not sold as part of the whole salvage sale vibes that I'm getting from Warner Brothers Discovery, where they're like selling everything that isn't nailed down. And I actually saw a salvage sale happening for the Twitter headquarters where they were selling a lot of kitchen equipment and really nice like coffee machines and stoves. Industrial size, of course, so nothing that would fit into a home. And that's the vibe I kept getting from Warner Brothers Discovery as well, who were like, hey, do you guys want the rights to like Casablanca? Who cares about that old shit, right? But they kept DC. They've made heavy plans, so I'm feeling better. (laughs) This is amazing to just right off the bat compare the new Jim Gunn, Peter Safran, DC Studios to to Twitter, to the collapse of Twitter. I like it. Ah, yeah, I would say that uh, they're quite similar. They had a huge moment in the late 2000s and early 2010s. And things started getting (laughs) a little rough, uh, you know, from 2016 onwards. So yeah, I love it. So for those who don't know what we're talking about, it is the... The new slate of DC that we're referring to that Peter Safran and Jim Gunn, the, the the big guys over at DC now, they have, they're just out there giving press conferences, just going around like, like executives, like, guys, we know where you came from. Never forget Tromeo and Juliet. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. James Gunn is a horror guy from Troma. He wrote a lot of low budget directed a lot of low budget horror movies and i think that is a good sign because he knows how to get things done with very little money and time how do we think jenna fisher is feeling right now her 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 x-man has made it real big oh um i don't think she holds any grudges she seems to be quite happy doing her office podcast, going through and reliving those moments. And she talks about those times in her life with such fondness. And I'm like, okay, I wouldn't even be surprised if she felt bad for him. It's like a lot of pressure. And they both came from independent roots. And then to have this immense amount of money and like stock and investment put into your work, it's like not just a creative output, but you have to deliver financially as well. And that's very unpredictable, as we will be talking about later in the episode today. So it's a lot of pressure. Yes. And I know yes. James Gunn has delivered before. And He made us care about Guardians, at least for a bit. Like, that's that's a win. Yeah, he did really well with talking about specific issues i really admired how he ended up making guardians of the galaxy volume 2 a story about parental abuse and family dynamics good for him i hope he brings the same humanity to all the other stuff that he's working on 
you know, we mentioned the trauma yeah. horror movies. I'm so excited that he's announced a Swamp Thing in his uh, lineup. I want to go back to like a 1940s style, like creepy classic, really moody horror of like a monster in the swamp. Yeah, I, 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 I have faith in James Gunn. He is making me care about DC right now. I highly encourage our listeners to look up the slate of DC that's been released. What's come? I think it starts in 2025. All these movies, TV shows, Superman movie. There's going to be like all these sort of like a universe that's being built. And then Robert Pattinson and and Matt Reeves' Batman remains in a universe called called Elseworlds. So. Really encourage people to read read up on that. I think it's an exciting time for DC, even though the world around them is crumbling. But that's not today's topic. <laughs> Let's quickly recap social media for our listeners before we enter today's topic. Absolutely. If you have comments, questions, or I would say concerns about our mental health after going through so much industry talk about mergers and acquisitions in the streaming world. Please send us your condolences on both Twitter and Instagram at fullscreen underscore pod. We are also on YouTube at fullscreen podcast, and you can reach out to us with a lengthy letter of condolence at our email fullyscreened at gmail.com. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, give our videos likes and comments and engage with our posts. It helps us beat the algorithm. I mean, gain exposure and (laughs) anything that you would like us to see covered on the pod in the future can also be sent through those beautiful channels. So uh, come be social with us on Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Let's hang y'all. All right, so today's topic, it's a fun one. We are going to talk about rom-coms, or rather the return of rom-coms on streaming, and like good little product leaders, discuss the what and the why and the how, and also take this opportunity to celebrate our queen, our queen of rom-coms, Jennifer Lynn Affleck. Oh, she's just Jenny from the block, y'all. Yeah. Always Don't be J-Lo. fooled by the rocks that she's got. Don't be fooled by all the all the money that she's making from rom-coms, baby. Rom-coms, J-Lo, streaming. Let's go. Welcome into the all hands section. This is where today we'll be discussing the winding path of the genre of romantic comedies, the golden age, the fall, and the rise on the horizon. All of it. So let's let's go all the way back. Let's look at the history of romantic comedies. So the genre of romantic comedies combining both romance and comedy, became popular in the 1930s, late 1920s in in Hollywood. While romance and comedy separately existed, and basically like everything else can be traced back to one William Shakespeare, (laughs) the combo of the genres really rose with the invention of screwball comedy, 
which very interesting, which was how studios were really drawing in audiences during the era of Hayes Code. And I know Raven has thoughts about the Hayes Code. Oh my God. If people don't know what the Hayes Code is, essentially it was a uh, a manifesto of morality that was enforced within Hollywood about the content of its movies. So when people come to me and talk about how free speech is valued here, let me fucking tell you about the fucking Hayes Code, y'all. They dictated what could and could not be showed within the frame of the screen, of course, but also what is implied within the screenplay. So you can't, for example, talk about gay relationships or interracial relationships even if it's not shown on screen because just implying it was going against the Hayes Code. It's also why the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's does not match the actual book by Truman Capote because it was made during the time of the Hayes Code being implemented. And then when the Hayes Code was finally lifted, everybody in Hollywood was like, thank God we can be horny again. And I think that's why a lot of sexuality was then shown on screen because it was so prohibited before. This I is- think Hayes Code was lifted around the 60s, no? Because that that is when the 60s cinema just like went all out. Yes, it was. I That's why the whole story of Holly Golightly, the prostitute from New York was changed into just a party girl from New York in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's because of what they could and could not show. I think screwball comedies was also what people wanted to see during the 30s because it was not a good time, y'all. People were That's like, That's what I was going to go into. Yeah, no, it's the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah, It's very interesting to actually look at Hollywood's history and everything is a response to the society around you, right? Instead of, I think we can see a lot of a lot of the stories, a lot of the rules respond to the changes in society that are happening instead of just sort of like leading the changes in society, which we can talk about another time. But this was also a lot was happening at the time coming off of prohibition, political instability happening with, you know, things going on in the world and the Great Depression. So a lot a lot of things combined to really lead to the rise of romantic comedies. This feel-good genre, the screwball comedy, as as Raven mentioned, and quickly skyrocketed. It, it So many movies came out during this time that were rom-coms. Holiday, Bringing Up Baby, The Philadelphia Story, Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, His Girl Friday, Rosalind Russell, Cary Grant, <laughs> The Lady Eve, Ball of Fire, Barbara Stanwyck, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Never forget Hitchcock. That's a rom-com, (laughs) y'all. So yeah, like all of these, just like a slate of movies, I believe there's like a Wikipedia article just like dedicated to the rom-coms of this time. And even though the genre has evolved over the years, subverting gender roles, being bolder with heartbreak and making it more realistic, a couple elements usually remain, right? Humor and that fairy tale happy ending. Whatever form... That is, it keeps these moments tied with the element of the meet-cute. I also love that it was a genre that wholeheartedly embraced women. Women were the protagonists, women were the central characters, women were the audience, and it's very rare to see things that make money be specifically catered to women, but they were doing it back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, so... 
I mentioned me cute and it reminded me of this 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 scene in The Holiday, uh, one of my favorite romantic comedies, where the screenwriter Arthur Abbott explains to Iris Simpkins in in the movie, quote, "Say a man and a woman both need something to sleep in and they both go to the same men's pajama department." And the man says to the salesman, "I just need the bottoms." And the woman says, "I just need a top." They look at each other, and that's it. That's the meet cute. Lovely. I love to see it. Some, ele- as we were talking about elements, there's there's elements that we can identify in the rom-com, right? Common obstacles of parental disapproval, career, exes, class, and wealth differences. These elements you can trace across, you know, a lot of the rom-coms throughout, throughout history. And then there's common tropes, which we love to see. Best friends oh. to lovers. Enemies to lovers. Oh, I love second chances. <laughs> second chance love. The Cinderellafication. How many movies have that have that scene where the the female lead is uh, at the top of the stairs in a beautiful dress with beautiful hair and amazing makeup and and everyone stares. So many. And the playboy finally settling down, the love triangle, the forced contractual relationship turning real, Keanu Reeves coming in between true love, (laughs) it's becoming a genre. (laughs) And like all Netflix Christmas movies, the hunky shirtless Australian contractor slash construction worker. Doing, Doing a bad American accent. He's trying. But he's not, you know, he's not at Kate Blanchett levels of accent work yet. But keep going, buddy. You'll get there one day. To hear Kate Blanchett yell at me in German is all I want. Watch Tar, guys. Okay, so cultural impact. I mean, obviously, no, we all know the cultural impact of, of rom-coms. Our day-to-day, if we think about it, is just like filled with so much that has come out of these like this genre. The other day, Raven, uh, my coworkers and I were talking about going to the Cat's Deli for lunch and our chat then flooded on Slack with, with, should we get the Meg Ryan table? And we were expecting someone, someone at some point during the lunch to say, I'll have what she's having. (laughs) And it's just, it's just amazing. You know, like all of these like normal everyday moments that tie back to rom-coms mm-hmm. when we were visiting new york we went to cats because it was supposedly and i agree from personal experience one of the best delis and i got a sandwich sandwich stacked so high i was like i've got to unhinge my jaw to eat this only after my meal was i was like oh yeah this is where meg ryan revealed to the whole world that women can fake orgasms and uh Sometimes I'm mad that she gave the game away. Other times I'm like, you know what? It's good to be reminded from time to time. As a threat to men. Also, we're not sponsored by by cats. Just so you know, they're just amazing. They got good sandwiches. The, the quotes that really dominate our, our, our everyday lives, like you had me at hello. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy. To me, you're perfect. What? Like it's hard? Uh, the BuzzFeed list of Nancy Meyers kitchens. And I have to say, it's the one from the holiday. Let's be real. The Cotswolds kitchen. Small, cozy, rustic, magnificent use of space with open cabinets and fixtures on the walls. I, it's amazing. It's I like kitchen. something's gotta give. Uh, maybe it's a recent That's bias. the popular opinion. 
That's the popular I, opinion. I'm going to go for Cotswolds. You know me. I, I'm that popular opinion, bitch. All my opinions are popular. <laughs> so domestic bliss. Yeah. Just beautiful. There's wardrobes that, you know, dominate our everyday lives. Clueless still kicking ass. Ugh, the yellow outfit. Nora Ephron being a household name and having such cultural cachet for for being a rom-com queen. And most recently, Singing in the Rain being the sole reason Damien Chazelle gets out of bed every morning, guys. Well, I mean, it's a great movie. I completely agree. But A Clockwork Orange ruined Singing in the Rain for me. So... Sorry, Damien. I just wish I had watched it in the right order because my fucked up life led to me watching A Clockwork Orange before Singing in the Rain. So when Gene Kelly is performing this title song beautifully, all I can think of is Alex DeLarge and the Droogs beating the shit out of somebody singing, I'm singing in the rain, (laughs) kick. It's what you, you're talking about, like the impact of rom-coms and the, the musicals that rom-coms were often presented and was so culturally large. It wasn't like relegated to a singular audience. It wasn't like, oh, you're the rom-com, rom-com type. It was like everybody went to see it, you know? It wasn't for niche audiences before. Yes, exactly, exactly. Let's talk about box office a little bit. So according to Box Office Mojo, the top five grossing rom-coms of all time are number one my big fat greek wedding having around 241 million lifetime gross what women want around 182 million lifetime gross hitch at number three around 179 million pretty woman number four 178 million and there's something about mary 176 million. These are good numbers for rom-coms, y'all. They're very good uh, by numbers, today's standards. but they're all before like 2005. They are. They are. Very interesting. I think they're see. all by like 1990 to 2004, 2002-ish. So around that period. Uh, second golden age of rom-coms, perhaps. And some of these stars are problematic in these movies, but we, we won't go there. Will There's Smith, so I still creep. love you. Kira does not speak for me. I will watch you slap terrible comedians all day long. Please. No, no, no. Please. Raven does not endorse the views of this podcast. No, no, no. Those are not the views of this podcast. And we will not say that name again here. <laughs> Careers made due to rom-coms. Julia Roberts, Pretty Woman, as we already mentioned, 180 million, Runaway Bride, Notting Hill, Ticket to Paradise, which recently just came out, which is actually amazing. Number two, uh, Jennifer Aniston. By the way, I'm listing them in top grossing order. So Julia Roberts is the top grossing romantic comedy star. Number two is Jennifer Aniston with movies like Just Go With It, around 100 million uh, domestic gross. He's just not that into you, aware. Kudos to her. She had to be in love with Ben Affleck. 93 million. And along came came Polly, which I really loved, at 88 million. And number three top grossing star in the rom-com pool is Drew Barrymore. The Wedding Singer at 80 million. Music and Lyrics at 50 million. Never Been Kissed at 55 million. And 51st Dates at 120 million. Amazing movies. 
And there's there's so many more. I'm just listing the top three. There's yeah. Hugh Grant, of course, who's seamlessly transitioned from this like heartthrob to this villain. He's a villain in Dungeons and Dragons, the upcoming Dungeons and Dragons movie. And he's just like, yeah, I'll just be here chilling. He's a villain in Paddington, isn't he? Spoilers, by the way. He's English, so I guess the transition to villain doesn't take that much work. Sick burn! Um, Take that, (laughs) colonialism. Everything is fixed now. That's all he needs it on his resume, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's always common threads because... I think, you know, as you go down the list of people that had their careers made to to rom-coms, it's Hugh Grant, um, who was in Notting Hill and Music and Lyrics. Cameron Diaz, who was in um, the incredible, often underlooked My Best Friend's Wedding. I think that's actually a really complex movie. Really, course, really good movie. I was, I was very surprised to not see my girl Sandra Bullock at the top of the list because... Her and Meg Ryan are what I think of when I think of like the rom-com heyday, you know? I feel with the with the Lost City, with Daniel Radcliffe, Channing Tatum, I feel like she needs to be in that top three. She's just like always been solid. Love Sandra, love Sandy Bullock. Ben Stiller, Richard Gere, Meg Ryan, of course, our queen, Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, Diane Keaton, Susan Sarandon, George Clooney, Anne Hathaway, Tom Hanks, Kate Hudson, Matthew McConaughey. So many people are known, obviously they've done such great work since their time in rom-coms or they continue to do rom-coms, but these are household names because of this genre and Absolutely, especially Maddie, Maddie McConaughey. So let's talk about some rom-coms and streaming because we were focused more on the theatrical side. And we'll dive into the paradigm shift later. And I think streaming has actually had a role to play in how rom-coms have kind of moved away from the theater. But I think streaming has been a good home. Well, let's talk about The Big Sick. Uh, Obviously, it went to theaters as well. It was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for Kumail Nanjiani and uh, Emily V. Gordon. Uh, but it Excuse was... me, Marvel star Swole Kumail Nanjiani. <laughs> He's forever Dinesh Chugtai from Silicon Valley to me. So he worked on that movie that was financed and produced by Amazon Studios. So it is listed as an Amazon original. And it's definitely a pretty big financial success to really indicate that we're like, moving into a new era of rom-coms where it's more thoughtful, more considerate about the experiences of the viewer. And I think trying to combat some of those tropes that you talked about without looking directly into the eyes of the audience and saying, hey, kids, don't stalk women. That's a no-no. So I think that this was a thoughtful movie and, you know, it ushered in some very good rom-coms that we're coming up with. Let's go through some of the big name releases. This is not, you know, an indication of quality. It's just that they did, you know, they did well and people liked them. So we'll start with Set It Up with Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. Um, You'll be seeing Zoe Deutsch talked about a lot, but this was like a really charming little film that was supposed to come out in theaters and Netflix picked it up. So I think that's the beginning of a pattern. Always Be My Maybe from the subgenre of Keanu Reeves' Ruined My Love Life, starring Ali Wong and Randall Park. Yes, Um, this movie. (laughs) 
yeah, I think it's high time Keanu Reeves was objectified as a sex object again. You know, he's had his fun with John Wick, but let's slobber over him again, guys. Um, we had Palm Springs with Christine Milati and Andy Samberg. We had The Lovebirds on Netflix with Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae, another pandemic movie that came out in 2020 on Netflix because its theatrical release was scrapped due to COVID-19. We had Persuasion with Dakota Johnson. It is listed as a romantic comedy because somebody forgot to read the book. So I guess they figured Persuasion by Jane Austen is a romantic comedy. Fuck you. But it's listed Did as Did they one. mean Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> yeah. Low on the romance, heavy on the comedy. Um, we also have Our Souls at Night on Netflix with Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. Like what a pair, what a pair, uh, what a, what a throwback to classic rom-coms, obviously so much diversity. We're talking about crush on Hulu with Rowan Blanchard and Auli Cravajo. It's so fun to see Moana in person <laughs> and not just yes. as a voice. And then you have like Father of the Bride on HBO Max with Andy Garcia and Gloria Estefan. It's the third time that this movie has been made, but this story is such a classic. You keep updating it for new times, new centuries. So of course you have Fire Island, you have Happiest Season starring rom-com Queen Kristen Stewart. That was a very sweet movie. And I also think it was refreshing to see the other side of the coming out narrative. Uh, you know, what it's like for somebody who's out and proud to have to deal with somebody who is Surprisingly isn't. lovely movie. Also Mackenzie Davis. Love mm -hmm. Mackenzie Davis. She was so good in this movie. And again, if you guys have not seen Station Eleven, please go watch yeah. Station Eleven. Incredible. She does a very good job of humanizing characters that aren't necessarily likable. I think she's a good performer. Exactly. And it had something else to say besides being schmalsy. I think, of course, like it was nice for, you know, the gays to have their own Christmas movie. I think that's cute, but there's more to it. I think Alex Strangelove also received a lot of positive feedback. I didn't watch it, but I think it's cute that teens also get to have their like little rom-com revival as well. There's of course like a bunch of stuff that's happening on streaming that is for specifically teen audiences, but that doesn't stop adults from watching it. You have of course the uh, objectively fucking terrible Kissing Booth series with Joey King and Jacob Elordi. Um, Can I say, apparently Ted Sarandos, the sole CEO of Netflix, has said that that's like one of the, if not the most watched series of movies on Netflix, which give us the numbers, man. Give us the data. I'm pretty so. sure it's people who are watching it to make reviews of it. So they have to watch it a second and third time to take like screen caps and shots and like use for references in their video essays. <laughs> it is probably a lot of hate watch and you know, it's its own industrial complex that has uh, pushed this to the top. So make of that what you will. But um, you also have another terrible series of movies, Tall Girl, Tall Girl 2. They are rom-coms. <laughs> then you have a pretty decent new entry into the teen rom-com and teen comedy genre in general, Do Revenge, 
with Maya Hawk and Camila Mendez. They that was really are, good, actually. I really enjoyed it. They have a lot of great chemistry, and it's it's a it's a decent attempt at satire. And of course, the most powerful cinematic universe of all, the Noah Centineo <laughs> cinematic universe. He's been in all the movies with To All the Boys series with Lana Condor. He was in Sierra Burgess as a loser with Shannon Purser, My Girl Barb. Should have stayed dead in the Upside Down than, you know, catfishing Noah Centineo. But there's also uh, another one he did called The Perfect Date with Camila Mendez. Again, you see a lot of same faces being juggled around in the genre. That's kind of how it happens. Are these all Netflix? So far, I've been talking about mostly Netflix. Yeah, because Netflix for them. is flooding the market with crap as per usual. They've also been around longer for sure. But yeah. guess yeah. what other market Netflix is coming for a chokehold? Because if you thought Hallmark, you're fucking safe, then you're not safe. Sleep with one eye open because they're coming for the Christmas market. They have a Christmas Prince series. They have the Christmas Switch series. Vanessa Hudgens. Each accent is worse than the previous one. What will happen next? You have another Vanessa Hudgens one, The Night Before Christmas. You have our high lady of teen rom-coms, Lindsay Lohan, coming back to claim her crown and falling for Christmas. Amnesia, rich heiresses, skiing accidents, murder. It's got it all. What does it not have? Plot, character development, cohesion. Who cares? It's Lindsay. She's back. She's gorgeous. She's got a head full of red hair and that sexy husky voice. I will do anything you tell me to, Lindsay. Is she still doing the like the Eastern European vague accent or is she out of that phase? No, Mama, she's an out and proud American over here. But um, I do know that she learned a little bit of Arabic because she lived in Oman for a while, which speaks very close to me because I grew up in Oman. So shout out to Lindsay. I love you, Habibi. And then, of course, the final, I would say, aspect of the evolution of rom-com and streaming is that it's not limited to a movie anymore. So all those complaints you have about rom-coms being shallow and not giving enough time to characters, it's being addressed with that time limit because we have like specific rom-com series. You know, we started out with The Master of None and The Mindy Project after it was canceled by Fox, it was picked up by Hulu. Now we've got Bridgerton. We've got Sex Education. We've got Love, Victor on Hulu. We've got How I Met Your Mother on Hulu. Normal People. The Sex Lives of College Girls on HBO Max. And of course, the amazing, the talented, the wonderful Emily in Paris on Netflix. What a show, what a commentary on Paris, what a commentary on French people. America and France will be forever friends. What a great uh, groundbreaking show about a American girl just uh, failing her way to the middle in France. Congrats. We did it. We also have like K-dramas and J-dramas and other like uh, Asian and Southeast Asian um, TV shows that are like romantic comedy focused on all of these platforms. Of course, we also have all the cutesy little animes that are made for girls as well. So it's not just shonen, guys. Sometimes we get like really cute things and 
you know, I watched Uran High School Host Club on Netflix. I don't recommend that experience. It will fuck you up. But yeah, there's a lot of new outlets for rom-coms on the streaming. So it's a good time. So this is a special section today to celebrate the MVP of rom-coms, Jennifer Lopez. So I've been watching a lot of interviews, Raven, of of Jennifer Lopez lately because her her new album just came out. This is me now, as opposed to this is me then, 20 years ago. And she's talking a lot about Ben and her newfound love with Ben Affleck with Zane Lowe in the Zane Lowe interview on YouTube. You can watch it. And y'all know our feelings about Ben. (laughs) (laughs) What is there to talk about to the love of Ben? Oh, I love it when his breath smells like Duncan all day. I love it when he starts a fight with David Fincher about wearing another sports team's logo because he fucking loves the Boston Red Sox so much. Good God. What is there to love? I can't wait to hate listen to this album, by the way. I'm going to be there. It's very... Of course his breath smells like Duncan. He's doing the Super Bowl ad for Duncan. Like, Ben, get it together. So he hasn't been doing it, doing it for us for a while. And his new movies about a movie about shoes or whatever, like K J Lo, whatever, (laughs) but (laughs) we love you. So we'll support you J Lo. And this is why we declare you the MVP of rom-coms because to date, Jennifer Lopez has done 10 romantic comedies, 10 and this is counting second act, 2018 second act as a rom-com, which mm, we can argue that it may not be, but it's between nine and 10, her number. So that, that's pretty high. And I just wanted to take this moment to shout out three of my top faves. By the way, this section contains major spoilers. Proceed with caution. Spoiler alert. All right. So the number one movie for me as a J-Lo romantic comedy is Made in Manhattan from 2002. So this is directed by Wayne Wong, director behind the Joy Luck Club. So good one right there. And guys, this one has my heart. Ray Fine's looking real fine. Like those ill-fitted suits, busting out that French in the elevators, just like absolutely sensational the way he stares at things. He's got, you know, he's got those eyes. That little paperclip trick for public speaking that he tells JLo's son in the in the movie. He's absolutely perfect in this. And I would say, I would declare. This is actually the best he's ever looked in a movie. Maybe the English patient, maybe the constant gardener, but he's just so good in this movie. I love that you're like, she has so much chemistry with Voldemort. It's so beautiful. (laughs) It's so amazing. She should be happy with Voldemort over freaking Ben Affleck. I, I, I really appreciate the energy you're putting off here. Listen, it's Lord Voldemort to you. 
So great movie, his political. So he's a senator in the movie and she's a maid in the movie and he is staying at a hotel that's very swanky and she's a maid at that hotel. And that's where all the hijinks take place. There's like a lot of like political speeches in the movie, a lot of just like he's just having a lot of fun saying saying a lot of like garbage that you know we don't see. That's that's not a politician that exists. And New York and all of its glory, just absolutely beautiful scenery of New York, and that fits so well in in the rom com genre in general. But also, I think because this is about this like rich senator and this maid, right? So this is this is the perfect place to set this movie. I thought in in terms of like also making a commentary about classes, the culture, like the class clash. And the romance between like such such different classes, uh, if you will, and to set this in New York where you're always uncomfortably clashing with all kinds of people, whether you want to or not, you're just always like in it. And to pose, it's very smart to actually pose a romance in the middle of it. Like made it really unique, made it really different. There's so many just like fun moments in this movie. There's a obviously. You know, as we mentioned up top, Cinderella moments happen in all rom-coms and her Cinderella moment in that like beautiful blush dress and the Harry Winston necklace and her like gorgeous skin and the the beautiful hair. It's just all incredible. And the way Ray finds his character stares at her. I will buy all of your beauty products, JLo, if they make me look a fraction of how good you look. This bitch has not aged a goddamn day. And I want to learn her witchcraft. I want to learn what satanic rituals she does to look this fucking good. I will do it. I don't care. You have found the fountain of youth, JLo, and it is so incredible to see, like, how little she has changed in her look. Like, she still looks just that beautiful. You know those Vogue videos of um, this is my beauty routine, like, like come come go to bed with me or something like that? She, her routine was so basic that I was like, yeah, she has, like, a dungeon where she's doing blood transfusions. Like, there's no way. 100% she's getting... The blood of virgins and eye of newt or whatever. It's definitely something else. Yeah, amazing movie. I would say my favorite moment, I actually rewatched it pretty recently, uh, is is they're having a fight. Rafe has just found out that she is not, in fact, a rich person named Caroline. She's a maid of the hotel named Marissa or Maria, I forget. And... He's chasing her. And by the way, she looks great in the maid uniform too, the lavender and white uniform. And I'm like, you didn't need that gown. Girl, you look great. And he's chasing her as paparazzi are taking photos because he's a hotshot senator. And he stops her and he says, was any of it real? And my God, (laughs) it works for me. 100% of the time. And yeah, perfect scene, a great movie, highly recommend it. That's my number one from JLo's rom-com filmography. All right, number two. It's Marry Me from 2022, so from last year. 
So made by Kat Coiro, who's done smaller, smaller films like Life Happens, A Case of You. And this movie, listen, this movie is new. I'm still trying to decide where it fits in the filmography. But I really, there's something so... I don't want to say cringe, cringe. Like what? What do I say? It's so honest. Okay. It's intimate. It's it's painfully sincere. It is so sincere. It is it is so sincere. It feels personal. Like you're being exposed to a part of a person that you should normally get to after knowing them for ten years, but you are instead subjected to that experience within ten minutes, and you're not prepared. It's the type of sincerity that I feel invites mockery because it has no layers of protection of self-awareness or even like an acknowledgement of what they're doing. There is no attempt to cloak themselves in irony to, you know, shield themselves from criticism. They are very vulnerable and they're putting themselves out there. Like, whoa, it's It's so moving too fast, babe. Let's slow it down. It's very raw. Yeah. And I think that in my younger, more cynical days, I definitely would have turned this shit off because it came off as saccharine. But I think in an effort to practice kindness, I'm just letting myself watch the experience very kind to all of the people yes the the kindness and patience was very in a way it's so real and i felt i mean owen wilson we can we can talk about whether he's fully there or not or if he's like thinking about his loki script during the filming of this but the focus on jlo's character is so so she's also a famous singer her character in this movie is a famous singer and the whole plot is that she is engaged to another famous singer maluma played by maluma and they are going to get married on stage at a concert spoiler she finds out he's cheating on her during this during the said concert and she picks someone from the audience to to say yeah i'll pick a random person and I'll marry you. And this random person, this math teacher in New York, Owen Wilson, single dad, is that person. And as the, as the movie goes on, there's a very sweet moments of them like walking around New York talking about their lives and actually like laughing at the fact that this is like somehow real, that she's, she's like... Ch- among all of the people she's chosen him and it's so like absurd and the media is like watching and, and waiting for them to marry and they're treating it like as okay I'll, we'll we'll just treat this as like a period of dating and then we'll call it quits but like the more they get to know each other the more they get to really open up and the more like I feel like we see a lot of JLo like the actual person where she talks about you know, whatever you want to call them, the personal letdowns or stepping stones or lessons that she's had in romance in her life. Yeah, I think there's a very meta moment within the movie that Owen Wilson asks Jennifer Lopez about why she's taking this news the way that she is because she's rich, she's beautiful, she's famous, she's on top of the world. Why is she so hurt and sad? And the character of Jennifer Lopez talks about how she felt undervalued all of her life. And I think that there was a little bit of an autobiographical quality to it because beautiful women are often treated exactly 
like they are in, you know, a lot of TV shows and movies where they're just made as objects and not seen for the people under. Like, was she acting? Like, I was like, is this J-Lo just? No, it was me. That's where it got to me where I was like, this is so sincere. I have never like seen this side of Jennifer Lopez, especially through her music. She makes party music, good time, fun time music. I don't really remember jamming out to a breakup song by Jennifer Lopez. I know she has them. Because we're supposed to see ourselves in Owen Wilson's character and her explaining that she's never going to stop trying to find love because she she always believes that there is something that will work out for her despite her her failures. And it was just like absolutely lovely. Like I was not expecting to to kind of see all of this, to get yeah. a window into her soul like this. So absolutely lovely. Highly recommend this. There's also like Sarah Silverman is in this movie. There's a very cute kid in the movie, Owen Wilson's daughter. And just just like a nice chill movie. Obviously, there's like the whole element of the performance. She is a singer in the movie. So you see a lot of concerts. Uh, There's a lot of original songs in the movie. The outfits, the glam, the sort of behind the scenes of what her life is like as a superstar musician contrasted with her like quiet down-to-earth persona it all is 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 very well done and again i also actually really love the soundtrack of this movie the title song marry me is actually really good but i really love the because marry me in the movie she's written for maluma and the other song on my way to you she has written for owen wilson's character and it's a really great song actually really good and I, in general, like a really nice watch for this time of year or any time yeah. that you want, honestly. Anytime. And it speaks a lot about Jennifer Lopez that she's come around to playing the Ray Fine character from Made in Manhattan, where she's at the top of the social pyramid and she's trying to find love with somebody who isn't at the same level as her, but she's still going to make it work. So it's like she's still she's still playing that role, but she's on the other side now. So that's cool. The cultural clashes in New York continue. Yeah, let's let's move on to your uh this this bullshit of picking this as number three. <laughs> Listen. This is number uh, this is your New York bias coming in to place the next cinematic gem we're about to talk about in number three. This is your anti-San Francisco agenda here. I see what's happening. Number three on this list. is The Wedding Planner from 2001. Stop the count. (laughs) So this is made by Adam Shankman, who's behind Disenchanted, Hairspray. So he's he's got a lot under his belt. So this movie, I have to be honest, I really struggled with putting this at number three. It was my number one before, but I had to go with Made in Manhattan because, yeah, there is some New York bias happening. Thank you for admitting this. Yeah, thank you. You know, Matthew McConaughey being a doctor in San Francisco and not a tech bro. We can argue. There's some room there. There's definitely some room there. And so the story of this is obviously J-Lo is a super successful wedding planner who falls for the groom of the wedding that she's planning, played by Matthew McConaughey. It's a super simple plot. Icky AF. (laughs) 
I mean, we love it, but if it happened in real life, there would be like a Leanne Rhymes type Wikipedia controversy section. <laughs> kind of like shitty behavior, but honestly, unless it's like super hot people like JLo and Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> then it's fine. You know? Yeah, I, I think it made room for the icky by giving the bride second thoughts as well because it would have been of course very shitty if she was super into it and she was absolutely ready to get married to him but it it comes down to something being more of a mutual understanding which is of course like a nice a nice way to just say hey now you can support this horrible relationship guilt-free but also like yay empowerment for girlies as you know she goes and tries to find her way on her own journey so uh, there's there's some feels more organic yeah 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 if again it has a lot of like great rom-com tropes and like elements i love the rom-com jobs usually it's in fashion or magazines this is a great rom-com job being a wedding planner being very close to just like the, the, the fairy tale romance, right? And yeah. very much like very much like a lot of other movies like Two Weeks Notice and 27 Dresses. She's our character is very organized and very dedicated and very successful and very type A and helping people achieve their dreams. But personally, she's very lonely and kind of lives an empty glamorous life. Her apartment is actually really amazing in this movie. We're talking about like the Nancy Myers kitchens. I really liked just like her. It's I love a modernist just kind of what you see at like a West Elm store. (laughs) And this bitch, they shot this bitch in some other place, like a studio lot or something. Ain't nobody got no houses like that in San Francisco. Uh uh-uh. uh. I mean, you can make probably bank from being a wedding planner because there's a lot of old money here from like railroads and shit, which I assume that, yeah, you plan Ivy Getty's wedding, you can get three houses that look like that for sure. But it is a stark contrast to like everything else that you see <laughs> in the city. You get to see Napa. Yeah, you get to see a lot of good stuff uh, yeah. there. I it's We were talking about elements of this, of the rom-com in this movie, right? It's got embarrassing and overprotective parents. We love to see it. Great, like, honestly, a great movie, great chemistry. Matthew is in his prime. Let's never forget Oscar winner Matthew McConaughey was a rom-com star first. And Judy Greer is the amazing, chatty, delightful best friend. And that dynamic actually like really worked for me. Uh, You know, speaking of like favorite scenes, uh, I mentioned a couple of my favorite scenes from the other movies, but I really love that Justin Chambers, Massimo, who's supposed to be her fiance, like the childhood friend that she had. First of all, his Italian accent, what is happening? But the scene where... He's asking her to to sit down. He's going to make her an, a very American meal and they're going to be buddy buddies. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do his like horrible Italian accent. And he makes her mac and cheese and it's just it's just kind of cute. I really like that scene and I will always remember it. And as ridiculous as it is, it's just it just fits into the vibe of the movie. So yeah, that is my number three. And I don't know, Raven, if you have any thoughts about this one before we move on to our least favorite. This is rigged. This is number one. 
stop the count, stop the steal. And that's Number all I one have remains to say. made in Manhattan. Ask me next year if the list changes, but for now, this stands. All right, so the least favorite. <laughs> it's Geely. It's so bad. It's, what are you talking about? It's romantic. It's hilarious. Is it a comedy? I, I don't know. But it's funny as shit. I'll tell you that, Mudge. Just bad, bad. Awful, bad, problematic, yes. like Ben Affleck, the love of JLo's life, and ben Affleck, JLo are. Ben Affleck continues to ruin lesbians. He did it with uh, Chasing Amy. Now he's done it again with Dealey. This is a movie of just stupendous proportions of stupidity. It was made by incredibly competent people. Who have done work. That's what I was surprised about. This is made by Martin Brest, who's behind Scent of a Woman, Meet Joe Black, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. What happened here? Like It was the media it circus around the relationship between Ben Affleck and J- Jennifer Lopez that actually changed the script, where the studio financing the movie said focus more on them and them being a couple because of the intense media scrutiny that they had. So, we were asleep at the job, y'all. This was just really bad. There's like really problematic tropes of like same sex relationships being treated for laughs. There's a whole plot of there's oh, a mentally nobody disabled. is safe. Nobody is safe. Are you gay? Boom! This movie's got you. Are you mentally disabled? This got you. Are you a woman? This has got you. Are you a man? This has got you. What? Where do you fall on the gender spectrum? Doesn't matter. We're coming for all of you. What race are you? It doesn't matter. This is an affront to humanity as a species. You are not safe. Nobody's straight safe. Straight men aren't safe. Nobody is safe in this movie, and that's why I love it. It's such a champion for equality where nobody, no. <laughs> One group, no one identifying group in humanity, be it ethnic, be it sexual, be it uh, religious, no one is safe. You're all fucked. This movie is shitting on your face. And for that, I salute you. Well said. This is uh, the, the funny thing is the Zane Lowe interview that J Lo did uh, a couple days ago, maybe a couple days, maybe a couple weeks. Uh, she she was mentioning that Ben Affleck uh, helped her come up with the name of the album 20 years ago on the set of Jersey Girl. And I'm like, girl, that was the set of Gigli. Like, no one mentions that movie. Like, they've chosen to forget it. So that is just an awful movie that we don't like to think about. Awful, awful. And we would just like to give a shout out to JLo's new romantic comedy on Amazon Prime, Shotgun Wedding, which I am not done with. I just, due to just life, I have not been able to finish it, but it's good so far. So maybe next year when we talk about this list or whenever, maybe Shotgun is up there in in the top three. Who knows? Thank you, JLo. Bust out your bottle of dessert wine, grab your tissues, and a pint of your favorite ice cream. It's a sad time as we break up with the missed objectives and key results. We're going to put on our favorite records from Lilith Fair, from Adele, 
from Taylor Swift. And we're going to do a little bit of crying as we dissect the heartbreak of where it all went wrong for rom-coms theatrically and why we're talking about rom-coms finding a new life on streaming. So we've talked about how things went right for rom-coms. So let's look into where things went wrong. So as you mentioned at the top, Kira, the high-performing rom-coms kind of stopped becoming a thing around the late 2000s. And I have some theories around that, none of which can scientifically be proved, but uh, hear me out. So I think, of course, there's a, the most obvious stuff around like the investment that we saw from studios into movies that were performing well at the box office became very predictable because of the 2008 crash, which affected every single industry that was you know flourishing within the united states not just real estate but anything that had to do with money and profit you know so they wanted things that were sure bets and if something didn't make money at the box office it was never repeated it was never seen as like a timing issue or a quality issue it was just coming down to like simple statistics so if a rom-com was released that didn't do well it never got made again by the studio and we started to see dwindling number of rom-coms and increase in the number of like IP and franchises that had a built-in audience that were bringing in a lot of people. There was also a lot of work done within the people making like big studio blockbusters around comic book movies and franchise movies to be even more inclusive to new audiences and bring them into it so that they could keep, you know, making more money. So that was, of course, like a big part of it. And I think another thing that came in, and this is like my theory, is that romance stopped going down the road of rom-coms and instead became much more dramatic. And I would like to pin that as I pin most things to Twilight. Now, Twilight is romance, yes, but it's supernatural romance. So it's always got like something extra added to it. Now, a creepy old dude falling in love with an inappropriately young woman is nothing new. Oh, social commentary. Leonardo DiCaprio. Shots, shots at Leonardo DiCaprio. Unlike Leonardo DiCaprio, Edward Cullen is unaging. (laughs) Snap. There's that caveat of like having a romance with something else attached to it instead of like the comedic uh, aspect of two people meeting and the chemistry between them. It was more dramatic. You know, we had started to see a lot of the young adult adaptations coming out. You know, I am number four, The Hunger Games, Divergent. All of them have romantic subplots, but they're not the main plot of the story. So I think that's another reason why like the rom-coms also fell away from theaters because the romance that was doing well was like very dramatic. And then my final theory is that TV started coming into play. I think the advent of the Hallmark comedy, as we talked about, is very predictable. It is a mathematical formula created by scientists at the Hallmark Channel to have a movie go through like a very specific route of a miserable career woman from New York. She's always from New York because the women in San Francisco are having a fucking delightful time in their career. So we don't need to do this shit. 
Um, oh yes, yes, the tech bros keeping them happy, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kay. We're 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 having the best time. Just uh, we're not even part of the Hallmark universe. The West has literally not been conquered there because it's all like Northeast focus. Uh, big city girl. Um, she's perpetually alone, perpetually loveless. Moves to a small town where there's a Christmas tree farm or something and it's Christmas and it's made a huge deal. And there's, you know, like fucking 40 days of Christmas, even though December only has 31 days. And she's going to meet a handsome guy who does like rugged bullshit work. She realizes how heartless and uh, cold she has become as a big city girl and gives it all up to be with, you know, lumberjack Sam from small town. New Hampshire, maybe, or Connecticut. I don't. I was know. gonna say Maine, somewhere, somewhere in like New Englandish. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, where they can pretend that they don't have a massive meth problem in the suburbs. There, this is the part of Maine that's just like really beautiful. Not the Stephen King part, not that part. Like we, we don't talk about that. This is like the beautiful, like it's just Christmas all year round, and, and they 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 do it for the Instagram hashtag of my main squeeze. Yes. I think TV came in and took that. I think this is actually pretty accurate. I think the TV... It's interesting to actually see that the... Going back to your earlier point about like these movies like Twilight taking taking the cake away from, from the romantic comedy genre. It's also because a lot of these already had built-in fan bases. So in a way they were, if they were books or video games or something before, they had the built-in fan bases and they tried to like lazily sprinkle a romance into them, right? And and call it like, hey, it's also a romance. Hello, pay attention to us. But it's all, it's it's mostly about like your theory of like financial crash. Of course, they want sure yeah. bets, and this is where this is actually where we were looking at the box office before. How all the movies, rom coms that were well performing, were actually nineteen nineties mm-hmm. to uh, about this time, and then it kind of took a hit, and then yeah. it all went into like IPs and franchises and a lot of just like existing. Either it's like a remake of something or it's a it's a adaptation of something that already has fan, fan bases. Yeah, and- I mean, we look at, we hearken back to the days of 2010 where the financial crash had happened. We were recovering, but we had not recovered. The big cachet items on the box office was, of course, the first Iron Man movie and The Dark Knight. And that was the tone of what we were seeing, you know. We were going to have Inception be a massive hit that year. But what we came out with from a rom-com perspective were just a series of flops. We had Leap Year from my once favorite, not favorite anymore, Amy Adams. Girl, you've been letting me down. Amy Adams and Matthew Good in uh, the most anti-Irish thing that I have ever seen since the American immigration policies of 19, not 1940s, <laughs> 1840s. The way I was enchanted haha, by Aww. this movie was because of the accents and the just like the greens of, of the, the landscapes and everything. But yeah, it's not a strong rom-com, y'all. Matthew Good is an Irish. I think this is uh, him trying to gain points by doing an Irish accent. We had, how do you know, a massive flop of 2010 with Reese Witherspoon, Paul Rudd, and Owen Wilson. This movie 
flopped at the box office. And with that, with that cast, you're like left completely befuddled. You had Life as We Know It with Katherine Heigl and Josh Duhamel, both of them regulars within that particular genre, flopped. When in Rome with Kristen Bell and Josh Duhamel, again, flopped. So you're seeing these movies underperform at the box office and the studios got cold feet. They pulled you know, their funding. They don't do that anymore. Movie stars were coming from other genres as well. So they weren't that invested in trying to find, you know, those stories around romantic comedies with the big stars. You don't have a Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn anymore. You don't have that connection. You had, I guess, Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson, and they were doing 15 million Avengers movies. So there's that. I have one more theory. (laughs) that I got from an article called Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny. Ah. (laughs) So the title of the article, I think, gives away the thesis, but basically it's that there is no expression of sexuality anymore, but the beauty and the objectification of bodies on screen was very much focused on being, you know, about physical power and performance. So it was about showing people looking buff and cool while they're ready to kick people's asses and do karate because that was the focus of the story as well, but it wasn't about like finding love. So the love interest is almost desexualized to a point where they're trying to make her a person because it's like, oh, she's not just a sexual object. She's a full-fledged character, but... That they're overdoing it? Yeah, they, it comes at the cost okay. of, like, chemistry. Like, yeah. I think Amy Adams and Henry Cavill had more chemistry in person than they did in the movie because it was very much focused on, like, building up the individuality without taking into consideration the sexuality is also part of an individual so it yeah, was- what, what do they say if uh if if two stars promoting during like the their like media junket don't have chemistry it means that uh they actually have a lot of chemistry in terms of like it the, was the- completely sterile i would say like if you compare the the chemistry that you saw Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain have on the red carpet for promoting their HBO miniseries Scenes from a Marriage, you would have thought that it was something really touching and beautiful and it was actually like a fucked up <laughs> look at how a relationship awful, awful falls destroyed apart. me. But also they had great chemistry in the show yeah, as well. Great chemistry in the show and they had great chemistry in real life. And I just feel like Movies don't capture that anymore. And I picked out like a particular quote from the article. And this, I think, uh, I think applies to more of a sociological, like audience psyche perspective. Millennials and Zoomers are less sexually active than the generation before them. Maybe we're too anxious about the apocalypse. Maybe we're too broke to go out. Maybe having to live with roommates or our parents makes it a little awkward to bring a partner home. Maybe there are chemicals in the environment screwing up our hormones. Maybe we don't know how to navigate human sexuality outside of a rape culture. 
maybe being raised on the message that our bodies are a nation-ending menace has dampened our enthusiasm for physical pleasure. This is a lot to you take thought in. We, you thought we were talking about romance, dear listener. <laughs> Holy shit. This is this is a lot to take in. I need to read this article, Raven. This is amazing. Yeah. I think... I- the points raised lot, here is yeah. it's really impactful because it also talks about the psyche of, of the average audience consuming all of this. And it is very important to think about that because like we talked about in the 1930s, he wanted something lighthearted to contrast with the harshness of the news and our daily reality surrounding us. But I think it has become even harder to ignore in this day of information because Obviously, we have information accessible to us at our fingertips, but we are also much more aware of the role that we play within the system. So it's harder to ignore. This is this is actually something I've been thinking about because the new Magic Mike is out, Magic mm-hmm. Mike's Last Dance. And I was thinking about it after, I think, reading something. This movie is about male strippers. This series is about male strippers, so it's highly sexualized. But do we ever see a sex scene in it? Do we ever see actually Mike get intimate in a scene in the bedroom with someone? No, we see we see like the scenes leading up to maybe what would happen behind closed doors and maybe the scenes after. So we never get to see any actual sex in a movie. And this is... The, I don't know. Steven Soderbergh has not shied away from that before. So I'm very interested to, I think all of your points are actually starting to fit in into into what we're seeing, the desexualization in movies, the implications keep happening, but we don't actually see the culmination of anything. And wow, (laughs) what a bummer. So streaming and rom-coms, are are rom-coms missing the mark on streaming or are they a sure bet? So there have been some bangers on streaming rom-coms. Other than the ones Raven has already named, there were so many, right? There's uh, something from Tiffany's, uh, Amazon Prime, Zoe Deutsch, Kendrick Sampson. We have uh, I Want You Back on Amazon with Charlie Day, Scott Eastwood, Jenny Slate, Gina Rodriguez, Manny Jacinto. We have a series which I really love on HBO Max called Starstruck, starring Nikesh Patel and Rose Marafeo. We have an upcoming Sundance darling already movie, Polite Society, which is likely to go to Apple TV. It's made by Nida Manzoor, starring Ritu Arya and Priya Kansara. And there's also another movie, What's Love Got to Do With It, directed by Shekhar Kapoor, starring Emma Thompson, Lily James, Shabana Azmi, Shazad Latif, and I believe this is on Tubi. Not exclusive to streaming, but I believe when it came to the US, it's a British movie that it is a to be availability situation. So the thing about streaming that we kind of already touched on is that we're not used to hearing such names lead movies in theaters, right? Let alone this like hallowed genre of romance. We see, we see we hear these like very diverse names in front of and behind the cameras. The plot lines are different. The story devices are different. The people who finance these productions and write these stories 
they're very different on streaming compared to the theaters. And streaming is giving them a chance because honestly, when all is said and done, the risk is lower here. It's lower stakes compared to throwing a grand production like Mamma Mia and spending all the money that you have on Piers Brosnan's plane tickets to Greece. It's very like, it's, it's again, it's about like, creating an intimate story with stars that may may not be at the level of like, as you mentioned, Scarlett Johansson or Chris Evans or, uh, you know, all these like now big superhero Marvel stars and giving them a chance to tell an intimate story that's going to hit with some audiences. And that is that is literally the vehicle that streaming needs to continue churning out this kind of content, this kind of genre on their platforms and part of it is that streamers throw one clueless executive per subgenre right and you know we imagine that they give them a private jet and no limit on their corporate amex and they're just going buck wilds but that's just bela bajaria streaming has no money right now <laughs> they're all there's just bela guys only bela gets that and Streamers, believe it or not, they are working probably from a, all these executives as streamers are working from a basement on Zoom with their video off. They probably have like under eye mask situations <laughs> happening that are expired. All the serums are expired. <laughs> but the thing is, they are working hard on this to get to give chances to creators in this genre to tell their story that have never been able to lead movies in theaters. And this is where streaming is really succeeding. Not just in this genre. I mean, horror is one that we've talked about before and horror is having a resurgence of its kind, but so is romantic comedies. Yeah, I think a couple of things. Number one, they're not using gel masks, they're just using cucumbers because they can be reused in food later as a part of a salad. And number two, yeah, yeah, yeah. like romance on its own can be pretty cheap to produce. Yes, yes. And this makes it, as we were saying, you know, easier to flood people with this kind of content because cheaper, a lot less hesitation on committing to multiple projects of this type. And it's not like Universal or Paramount or all of these big studios committing to that like one big project that's going to come out during holiday season. And there's a lot riding on that big stars, big productions, big budget. Streaming has made it so that this is an evergreen genre, like every week. Every couple of weeks, every weekend, there is something new in this subgenre in romantic comedies that you'll have new to watch. And yeah. and I want to add yeah. to that newness because it's not there in theaters. So you have a perfectly good there. excuse to stay at home and watch something that you can't watch in theaters. So that's where streaming is coming in for the audience is saying, hey, all those things that were shut out initially from theaters, we're going to bring it back for streaming because we know that's what you're craving. You can't get it anywhere else. Absolutely. And I have this quote, which I really liked from Scott Meslow, who's the author of From Hollywood with Love. In an interview with the National News in 2022, he mentioned that, quote, basically everything that might make rom-coms unattractive to the studios makes them more appealing to the streamers. They're relatively cheap and straightforward to make, require minimal special effects, 
offer attractive leading roles for stars who want to show how funny and charming they are. Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon have all increased their rom-com output over the past few years, and I think they're just getting started. Hallelujah, Scott. Can't wait to see it. And so, with that in mind, is this a sure bet? Is this genre a sure bet on streaming? I declare, yes. There's a few points, right? We are hardwired to love this genre. It's popular. It gets eyeballs. It gets fairly respected. It gets everyone talking about it on socials and and in your life. And that's, as we've mentioned in previous pods, you need that marketing. You need that product marketing, baby. And I would say that this kind of access and model that streaming has enabled for rom-coms is actually making this genre prestige in a way. And the idea that streamers are so willing to take a chance on such diversity and breadth of stories that it's that I think is spilling into prestige category. Think Bridgerton. It is a marquee show for Netflix. The reason I started watching Bridgerton after having ignored it for a while, even though I knew it was so popular, is because in my book, it was prestige. It was the mar- it was the show of Netflix uh, for a while. I want to say that the prestige you're talking about has come from an inward reflection of the audiences themselves, where we have recognized the bias towards things that are feminine focused to be deemed lesser than by critics, you know? Yes. I don't think Twilight is inherently more stupid than the Fast and Furious movies, but you're allowed to get a free pass with that shit because it's male driven. It's the gaze too. It's the gaze. The gaze is shifting because mm-hmm. the people who are telling these stories are changing. We are bringing diverse people to tell these stories to actually garner this prestige and garner this respect. The more you have a lover of the genre tell the story with with care, the more you get people to to see that passion behind this, you know? Because the genre of romance has become an underdog, it's like you're getting people who are genuinely invested in the genre to come in and do work and not like someone coming in for a paycheck, aka Michael Bay. So I, I I would love to see like 360 degree like action shots that Michael Bay does in a romantic like period drama. Like, yes. Do I want to see Pride and Prejudice by Michael Bay? Kind of. But I think, again, it's it's interesting to see people who understand the tropes and they're like, this is how we play it straight because we know what the people want. And this is where we can do a little bit of subversion, a little bit of fun. And they're they're trying to push that boundary with the audience who are appreciating it. I mean, yes, they're they're doing well critically. They're not getting shit on critically just because they're like romantic fluff, right? That that brings me to the point that critically, all these the things that we would treat as fluff are actually being well reviewed. So, A Castle for Christmas that came out, I believe, last year on Netflix with Brooke Shields has seventy five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That very well reviewed by by critics and a honestly like a pretty fluffy movie like Falling in Love shows up at a sixty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is higher than Marvel's Thor Love and Thunder, which is at 64% currently. So this genre 
is it has 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 respect and i think that period of drought of like really bad and cheesy rom-coms treating this genre with disrespect after you know as you mentioned the financial crash i think that was really necessary for this generation of people to go back and reflect like i'm not being served i grew up with this incredible genre and then it just stopped and and now this generation is causing this awakening of Let's go back to appreciating the romantic comedy. And this has also, I think, allowed the tricks and tropes to evolve a lot more and stay a lot more abreast of what people are responding to. You know, I always think of like like a coding boot camp versus like a like your textbook from college uh, from 2005 about MATLAB. How much do you learn from a three-month coding boot camp? I mean, we're product managers, so we're always going to give like tech examples versus how much of the 2005 textbook, whatever your college textbook do you use? It's very, it's about being able to stay up to date with what's happening in the here and now. And then I also think more importantly and more powerfully, streaming gives creators a chance to reflect on big movements like Me Too. What does it mean to create a romantic comedy in the Me Too era? Allows them to correct and invite more people into the camp by being more inclusive. And as we mentioned, subverting the idea of of these tropes, like what is a happily ever after, a one size fits all kind of thing. Addressing toxic masculinity and the patriarchy and its role in this genre in particular. Challenging beauty notions should a white blonde female carry a movie or is there room to have everyone be involved in this genre and removing misogynistic elements as well. Like this genre is just littered with sadly misogyny. I, for God's sake, making sure that they pass the Bechdel test, which is where if for those who don't know the Bechdel test um, created by Alison Bechdel is where two women who are named characters in the movie have a conversation with each other that isn't about a man. You would think this is simple. <laughs> a lot of a lot of movies uh, don't pass that. But I think back to like the time of 2001 where Bridget Jones's diary tried to make us think that Renee Zellweger was like ugly and fat in that movie and I just was so struck by how much of its time it was and I'm like we can address this where we don't have to pretend that women don't struggle with body issues and feeling uh, undesirable but we do not have to frame it as something so toxic yeah I'm here for this resurgence of romantic comedies on streaming and I can't wait to see this We've already seen this list that is coming for romantic comedies on streaming this year. And there's a lot lined up and I just can't wait to see them. I am super excited and streaming is doing something right here. Final thoughts and wrap up on on all of this. So... Streaming platforms have proven to be a great home for the revival of romantic comedies, a great reading ground, and a fantastic tool for the dispersal of these movies. Before we discuss what other genres can experience such an awe-inspiring resurgence on streaming, I know, Raven, you had some final thoughts to share about the future of rom-coms. Yeah, I 
really want to take some time to celebrate the fact that a genre much like horror that is deeply appreciated by women and people of color and queer people, you know, people who don't necessarily see themselves represented in mainstream stories, um, they get to actually participate in the genre that they are so heavily invested in. I think a lot like horror, these movies have the opportunity to represent those perspectives in a very human lens. Everybody experiences love and connection and relationships, whether they're romantic or not. And the ability to portray those stories authentically with the people actually from those communities, like you talked about, we're going to see very interesting stuff if that keeps happening. And because it is low cost, I don't think that streaming will necessarily meddle a lot uh, along with Shakespeare, I consider you know Jane Austen and Oscar Wilde to be pioneers of the romantic comedy genre, and they have had so much to say about society that still remains relevant to this day because it's about very deep human com- like commitments and emotions that have stood the test of time despite the fact that there've been a lot of shifts in you know the role that women and minorities and in Oscar Wilde's case, gay people play in society today, but a lot of those connections and a lot of those perceptive insights that they have still hold up. And I would like to see this happen in a new medium that makes it accessible to everybody because yes. of the wide reach of streaming. It's very easy to like let this, if this genre is done well, it's very easy to let the story flow through you and then you've just you don't even know that you've absorbed so many nice things that you like think of later and i i think that is i think streaming is like very well centered to actually diffuse and disperse this yeah it's a good home for these niche genres like we've talked about we both love horror we both love romance and i think that Uh, Other genres that we don't see play out in theaters as much are also going to start coming to streaming to find a home the same way rom-coms have. Yes. And I think, honestly, we're already seeing this, right? We're seeing like a a sort of revival of, of Westerns happening on streaming much more than the big screen. I've, I mean, obviously the Sheridan verse, Yellowstone, 1883, 1929. What is the other show? You know, whatever. Those just random years. Yellowstone, Jellystone. Yes. Um, Yes. Yellowstone now led by Matthew McConaughey. And most recently, Emily Blunt. A gritty gritty reboot of Yogi Bear called Jellystone. Let's do that. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) Streaming, are you listening? Yeah, we've seen the English, another Western, about a a time and a story that I was very unfamiliar with in, you know, back in the heyday of, of, uh, I suppose, Westerns and led by, uh, of course, Emily Blunt and Chaske Spencer. And again, like a romantic lead as, as a Native American man, that is very powerful to see, uh, especially during this time. And I would highly recommend the English. It's on Amazon Prime. Very weird, very bold, 
incredible story, gorgeous visuals, highly recommend this. And so Westerns, I think, are having a moment. We'll see a lot more Westerns. And we'll, I also think musicals on streaming are, are having a moment little by little. Every show that I've seen that has been like a big show, The Boys, Lucifer, ha have dedicated, if not multiple, at least one episode to just being a musical and to see that episode of the boys the musical episode was a delight just spectacular and remarkable to see people perform and i i think we're used to seeing musicals as this like spectacular event that we go to to the movies for which they are which they are very theatrical but let's let's bring them Let's bring them into your living room. Let's bring, let's have more, yeah. more musicals. L like most things in Hollywood, the failure of Hello, Dolly in the 1960s was the death of the movie musical. And so it went to television. It went to Glee. It went to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I oh, think Oh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, yes. Shout out to yeah. my girl, Rachel Bloom. My God, I love her. And you were talking about Westerns. You want to see Jason Momoa in Frontier, which is technically a Western because I believe he's based out of the West Western frontier of Canada as a fur trapper. But I think, yeah, it goes to that, that genre. That's Apple of, TV, right? No, he's in a different one on Apple TV called C. <laughs> that's sci-fi oh, based. But yeah, the, the Jason Momoa looking hunky outdoors universe is a beautiful one. Going strong. Going strong. Supported by streaming, like you said, because it is the home of genres that have actually been out of the public consciousness for so long that I'm sure that there are some annoying Zoomer and Generation Alpha assholes who are like, this is so cool. What a groundbreaking thing to do, <laughs> setting a story in cowboy times. And you're like, you've never heard of the good, bad and the ugly, but there are a whole generation of people who've never seen a spaghetti Western who will find this to be the first narrative that they have seen. And I mean, that's okay. I'm glad more people are getting exposed to this. I hope this means hopefully that brings them back. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You, I want them to, I, I also want to give a shout out to red Ted redemption, which is a, big reason for why people are caring about westerns again i mean red dead redemption in turn was responsible for the creation of old town road by lil nas x so ah. there's a whole thread that we can draw from that to westworld to <laughs> the english and i think even more to come you know we have a, a really good show called warrior which was on cinemax and now on hbo max about of, that's based on an original story by Bruce Lee about a man in 1860s, 1870s San Francisco, a Chinese immigrant, during the height of the what was called the Yellow Peril at the time. And these are stories that need time to be told, and you don't see them in, on t uh, anywhere else. So you're seeing them on your television screen or your laptop. Or This should be what streaming is for. It shouldn't necessarily come in to take the place of traditional cinema. It's like, who knows? The success of this can mean that we start seeing them in theaters again. I mean, musicals did thing. get popular again. Fucking yes. Les Mis happened. The Greatest Showman happened. All this bullshit happened because... Gleeks were pushing the 
you know, Glee remixes of songs to the top of the iTunes charts over the original. So who knows? La La Land almost won the Oscar. Yes, it's very... So opening up these portals and channels to bring new kinds of people into the genre, people discovering Westerns and musicals and rom-coms through one story that they really connected with and having this like awakening inside them and then really going back and exploring more. Like that is the hope and that is what streaming is doing. That is what streaming is really good for. Opening up accessibility is just like for stories is so powerful and we never really think about it. I was thinking about how like biopic adjacent movies or sorry, series and movies are having a comeback as well. Winning Time on HBO Max, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, imagine this being in the theaters like no one's gonna go see this right it had really great numbers as a show on hbo and now we'll see how air does the movie about shoes guys because that is that is amazon studios movie but with the mgm situation happening it's it's gonna be a exclusively in theaters at first and then probably a little later go to go to amazon prime but yeah we'll see how it does because um i would see it in a heartbeat if it's in my living room but am i going to see a movie about air jordans in the theater well i'm sorry the winning combination of ben affleck and mad damon works so well in the last duel i think it's going to result (laughs) in the same a box office lightning in a bottle with a movie about Michael Jordan starring two honkies from Boston. It's just, it's the beards. I mean, Jodie Comer is the only one that came out looking like a star, but... Rest um, in peace, Jodie Comer star. I don't know if she can recover from that. I'm praying for you, girl. That's a, that's a rough don't, one. She went he, from that to... to ben Affleck, So Ru- she's fine. <laughs> Ben Affleck ruined Amy Adams. She ruined Jodie Comer. He just he finds these women and then he ruins them. Ryan Reynolds got it. Free Guy. She did well in Free Guy. We have thoughts on Free Guy, but we'll just leave it there. We love Jodie Comer. And so, future of rom coms on streaming is bright, and I think streaming should take more bets on these genres that have been that have been sidelined, that have been ignored by theaters and bring some love back, bring some audiences back. So like studio executives are able to sort of put some life back into, into these genres. And I think that is where we'll leave it for today. Next time, guys, we're entering Star Wars season and I need everyone to just take a seat because this is going to be nonstop for me. You're going to hear a lot from me. Yeah. We are going to talk about how to build a roadmap, a Disney Plus, Dave Filoni, and a Star Wars case study. It's happening. Send your thoughts and prayers for me as uh, I navigate this treacherous minefield with Kira because Star Wars is pretty near and dear to her heart. And I definitely appreciate the work and planning that the people behind the new iteration of Star Wars and their creative pursuits have done. So this is going to be really interesting in that aspect. So until next time, full screeners. Bye. Bye, everyone.